And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast on a Thursday afternoon in sunny Los Angeles, California, where it's time, for the first time in way too long, to say the three most anticipated words in niche basketball podcasting. What up, Beck? (laughs) What up, Zach? It has been way too long. Um, I don't know why. I think at least one of those was because I had to cancel on you. Um, I'm a little concerned sometimes, uh, at the, the welcome to part that like, sometimes like today, it sounded like your voice was strained just a little, I'm, I'm afraid you're going to blow a vocal cord one of these days on the welcome to as it, as it rises and, and booms into the mic. I'll, I'll be all right. I have good, I, look, if I broke, if my voice changed, it would undoubtedly be for the better. I hate my voice. So if, if <laughs> maybe I could accidentally, um, like when Phoebe, when Phoebe catches a cold in Friends and all of a sudden becomes an amazing, sexy singer with a deep singing voice, maybe that could happen to me. I don't know. None of us, none of us like our voices. Everybody, when we start in this business and we get our first little like recorder, even before the digital recorder, when I had the little micro cassette, and the first time you do an interview and you go back and you're all excitedly to go transcribe. Well, nobody excitedly transcribes. Transcribing is torture. But then you hear your voice and you go like, "Oh my God, I sound." weird and awful and by the way i'm rambling way too much and like 30 years later i'm still rambling way too much i have somewhat gotten accustomed to my own voice but since you mentioned friends i just had a flight to california and back and i finally queued up the friends reunion have you watched no i have not i'm I'm, you know what i'm strangely uninterested i don't should i I be interested i don't care i really don't care i love respect to all of them they've all had wonderful careers i enjoyed the show when it was on i don't i don't need to see it it, it was the right time for it, right? Like, I wasn't going to set out time during an a era of Squid Games and all these other amazing shows on Netflix and every other streaming service. Like, there's just not enough time. Succession is back. I love Succession. So the plane was the right place to finally say, you know what? I am just curious enough. This was a period of my life. My 20s tracked with friends in their 20s. So there's a, a, an attachment there. Uh, what I'm saying is I, I, I got a little weepy there on the plane. I was feeling very sentimental. Uh, I actually enjoyed the reunion. A couple cheesy spots, but um, I enjoyed seeing them back together. It was nice. You get zero seconds to think about this, and there is a correct answer. Best friend's character, who is it? Ah, Chandler. Incorrect. <laughs> it's incorrect? The best friend's character? Are you going to say? You're not going to say Ross. Ross is arguably the worst friends character ross sucks <laughs> uh the answer is the answer is joseph tribbiani what joey really next we're not i'm not even defending right. it it's it, it's inarguable all right uh, debate debate for another day i suppose but uh i'm not sure his per is as high as you think it is oh it's it's not i it doesn't matter um <laughs> you've written a couple of recent pieces that we're going to talk about one is the warriors and the the their lack of surprise i think internally that they are off to this kind of start they're 12 and 2 they're second in offense and first in defense by a lot I think and and have firmly firmly planted themselves in the inner 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 circle of championship contenders I was high on the Warriors coming into the season I wrote and said many times I think their final their ceiling is the NBA finals I did not expect them to come out of the gates like this I was more thinking hold the fort until Clay gets back, so you at least get a top six seed. Don't get into the play-in. Don't don't you know take your chances there, and then get rolling in the playoffs. And they have exceeded my expectations even even massively. 
Uh, what did you learn? What have you learned? You've been around the Warriors more than I have. I was around them in L.A. for the for the opener, and you could feel, by the way, you could feel the cautious optimism that they felt going into the season. What have you learned uh, being around them? That they're in a very interesting point here, right, where Clay's not back yet. They seem to be playing at a championship level, a dominant kind of level that none of us could have anticipated. They have young guys they're really excited about that they're trying to bring along along the way. And it's a really strange mix for a team that we are now talking about as, as championship contenders. And granted, you you did say before the season started, and, and I think I felt too, they could be contenders again this season. And maybe I even expected on some level that they would be contenders. But it, it was predicated on a very big <laughs> predicate that Clay Thompson has to be back first and Clay has to be Clay-like. And we're not even there yet. Weissman's not even back yet. And that, that Steph is doing this, and I want to say, Steph, like, obviously the Warriors are doing this, but that Steph is playing, obviously, at an MVP level and getting enough out of a collection of Andrew Wiggins, Jordan Poole, Damian Lee, Draymond, Otto Porter, Nemanja, uh, Nemanja, I believe, Bielitsa, Gary Payton II, Kevon Looney, and a, you know, uh, now, what, 37, 38, Andre Iguodala, like, when we saw them slog through the last couple of years, if you had said project a couple of years forward and where are they going to be? And by the way, it's going to be with Iguodala back, but in the in the twilight twilight of his career, and this this cast of like mostly castoffs, you're not projecting a contender necessarily. I mean, certainly not prior to Clay coming back. So there's um, the I thought what I was most struck by Zach, and it was the first time I got to go to Chase Center because Chase opened a couple months before lockdown, and then I hadn't been anywhere since. It just felt like being at a Warriors game in Oakland. And and that's not I don't mean this to be heresy. Really, I find that hard to believe with the so, with the newly sh- the sheen and the the tech money and the a gazillion dollars just to sit in the nosebleeds and and watch little dots move around the floor. It feels like Oracle, Oracle. It, it not booming like Oracle. The vibe though, the excitement level, the anticipation every time Steph is about to do something, um, the way that they play. Like I when I wrote this, like if it was kind of like one of those that you squint your eyes, blur it out a little bit, and you wouldn't realize that this was a different cast around Steph. Like it's Steph and a bunch of guys, and in the past, Steph and all those guys were doing incredible things. The ball's moving. Steph is is shooting deep threes. Everything is you know clicks in this very what you know what we always say joyful way, right? Like Steve Curry loves to use that term. These these guys at their best play with a certain kind of joy and it's become almost a cliche. But that's the team I saw and that's the crowd I saw. Like that the synergy between Warriors fans and that team and the way that team plays, it felt like that. No, it's not booming and rattling and vibrating the way that Oracle did. It it's not possible in a building that's probably twice the size. But the vibe was so similar that um that that's what really struck me, that there's something about this team that still feels, uh, you know, bigger than the sum of its parts, that is kind of magical, and that and that evokes a passion from the crowd that, um, that you don't see necessarily that often. Well, what's magical about it is that there has just never been a player that plays anything like Stephen Curry. There just, there just hasn't ever been nobody that can shoot like him off the dribble, not even off the catch, like off the handoff, off like not even facing the basket when he catches the ball, has ever moved around and screened and cut and done all of the things that Steph does away from the ball. 
And the reason I was optimistic about the Warriors is you could see this coming down the stretch of last season when he took a, a gazillion threes, when they when they couldn't play the young guys anymore because Wiseman wasn't healthy, and they just leaned into, we're just going to play dudes who pass and cut and move and understand how to play with Steph. And all of a sudden, they were awesome again. And they are awesome now. And I also think, you know, there's a very interesting sort of, uh, here's a stat for you. Ready for an interesting stat? Hit me. Luka Doncic runs the most pick and rolls in the NBA right now. 75 per 100 possessions of Dallas Mavericks basketball. Trey Young and Chris Paul, I think, are two and three. They're in the 60s. Somewhere there's a bunch of guys around 50, like Donovan Mitchell, Mike Conley. Steph is at 29 per 100 possessions. That has, of course, been the subject of much consternation among (laughs) the kumbaya Kerr cadre of Warriors fans who kind of accused Steve Kerr of almost suppressing Steph Curry's greatness in the name of this dogmatic strength in numbers, joy, pass and cut. Everyone's got to touch it. Everyone's got to move it. And I think at times that criticism had a little bit of element of fairness to it. Even when Mike Brown coached the team when Steve was away from the team, he leaned much harder into, oh, we have Stephen Durant. We're just going to run pick and roll with those guys over and over again because there's nothing you do to stop it. But now that they have the surrounding talent that fits that style, you see the method to the madness of playing that way because there isn't a team that plays anything like them. I think the Heat are probably the closest team, and they benefit from this too, where you play Golden State after playing all these teams that play relatively normal NBA basketball, and you're shell-shocked going into their game. Like, how do we – like, this is totally different. It's why the Cavs in almost all of the NBA finals they played would get shellacked in the first two games because they would come in after this crap Eastern Conference playoffs where they just destroyed everyone without trying and everyone played normal basketball. The Warriors play Steph ball and it's just, it's very hard to deal with. And, and also um, the free throw thing is very interesting because we've seen the new rule emphasis on, you know, you don't get your bull fouls and where all this stuff has impacted some of the teams that are most dependent on high pick and roll, high pick and roll, high pick and roll, high pick and roll. It has not, and, and also most dependent on a singular player. The Warriors, for better or worse, have never been dependent on a singular player on the ball, right? Like the way the Rockets were with James Harden. And they haven't been impacted by it at all. Like they're just, their style is almost more apt for this. So I think there's a perfect storm of stuff going on it starts and ends with Steph who by the way is taking 13.5 threes per game which would be an all-time NBA record here's the thing Zach if you love the Warriors and I know Warriors fans love the Warriors even the ones who uh get uh testy about how Steve Kerr doesn't run enough pick and roll with Steph but if you love the Warriors and what they've been not just that they've been great not just that they've won championships not just that they were the first team in decades to go to five straight finals you love them in part because of their style of basketball because it's fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's fun to watch Steph. And it's fun when Steph and Clay are both hitting and Clay's healthy. Like, that's fun too. But they're fun to watch because of their brand of basketball also. Now, yes, you take Steph out of that equation and it all, you know, disappears. But if you're looking at them and you're thinking like, wow, look at what they're getting out of Jordan Poole. That's really nice. I could not have seen that coming. Like, oh, wow, Andrew Wiggins, I thought, you know, thought his career was practically over in Minnesota. Now, look, he's a, he's a, a functional, really solid contributing player Looks like he's having fun. Well, guess why that is, folks? 
because they play this style of ball, because they're not leaning into heliocentrism, as our friend Seth Partnow uh, coined it, because they're not going full James Harden slash Luka Doncic slash Russell Westbrook, because that style, I believe, and this has been the subject of ongoing debate between me and, and, and some folks uh, around the league, um, chiefly the guy who used to be the GM of the Houston Rockets, um, that I believe there is something to the idea that keeping guys involved, keeping them happy, even if they're not shooting all the time, just getting touches, that that produces a happier, healthier environment so that when it comes time for your star to give up the ball because he got double teamed or triple teamed or is just slumping and it's a tight playoff series and whatever, those other guys, and I can't prove it statistically, and there's probably no analytics that will ever prove it, but I believe that when guys are involved and are feeling part of it all the time, they're going to function better, especially in, in, in crunch time. And I've always felt that there was a logical limit to what you could do with hyper usage. Like James Harden's usage in Houston was like hyper usage. It was 35 plus. And Westbrook had some of those. And Doncic has had some of those. I think there's a limit. There's a ceiling to your success if you're overly reliant on just your one star. And I know that in the regular season, especially you're maximizing possessions and the efficiency of those possessions. And it leads to more wins in the short term. Well, I think, I, I think it takes a, a whole team though. Strength in numbers matters. There's no question that the happy, happy vibe thing is true. Like I remember doing a, a feature on Trevor Ariza uh, in 2018, I think that conveniently ran right before Trevor Ariza missed 9,000 three pointers in game seven <laughs> of the conference finals against the Warriors. And I learned that he had even sort of, even though he was thriving in the role he was in, in Houston, sort of was like, this isn't the basketball that, like, I need to feel the ball. I like cutting. I like catch and go. I know, like, we don't get to do that stuff here. And that chafed is probably a strong word, but, like, wasn't in love with the style of play. I think what Daryl Morey would say is, basically happy and healthy. I don't care about happy, happy and healthy. I care about winning and what is our vehicle yes. to winning? Our vehicle to winning is not Trevor Ariza doing stuff with the ball. It's James Harden doing stuff with the ball. But remember, Mr. Beck, in the 2019 conference finals between the Rockets or conference semifinals, I think, between the Rockets and the Warriors, do you remember the Houston Rockets officiating report that was leaked <laughs> slash released in the middle, in the beginning of that series? Do you recall this? I had forgotten until you just mentioned it. Yes. So that report through uh, galaxy brain math concluded that the Rockets had been shorted. I don't know how many points in game seven of the 2018 conference finals, the previous year where Trevor Ariza missed the aforementioned gazillion threes and the Rockets missed 25 and or 27 or 24, whatever the hell the number was. And, and basically the refs cost us blah, blah, blah. And, I remember I wrote this piece at the time and reported it out and stuff. And I don't I, I think th the math behind that was questioned. Right. And, but I don't even think the league questioned the, the conclusion that there were more missed calls or more non calls, a slight number, a small number, but more that um, hurt the Rockets than hurt the Warriors. Like there was a small right officiating disadvantage for Houston. And to your very point, Mr. Beck, the reason for that was many, many years of study, internally, externally, publicly, whatever, have shown that superstars do not get as many foul calls as they deserve by the letter of the law. And it's because 
you just don't get every single call if you're Blake Griffin posting up a million times a game. You, it's like Shaq. It's the Shaq syndrome. Like Shaq gets fouled on every possession. They're not going to call it. And so yes. naturally, when your offense consists entirely of one guy doing everything all the time, you are going to suffer more from that disadvantage non-calls than a Warriors offense that is more egalitarian and joyful, dare I say. So there is something there is something to that. And then for the same reason, the officiating stuff is not affecting them. But look, it all starts with Steph on offense and yes. Draymond, who is a tour de force on defense. And we can quibble about the pick and roll numbers. The bottom line is the point of a pick and roll is to get two defenders on one guy. Everything Steph does, coming off screens, cutting, running the wing in transition, accomplishes that. It doesn't have to be a pick and roll. Now, if he doesn't have the ball, that means he might not be the guy who shoots in these situations, but he's always drawing two to himself. And that's why I have said before, normal rules of spacing just do not apply to this team. It's why they can play Draymond and Andre together. It's why they can play Draymond and Looney together, three non-shooters together, because that one guy, and then you throw in Clay, draws so much attention in so many unique places that are roving around the floor that you just throw those rules about, oh, you can't play two non-shooters. You just throw them out the window. And I'll just say this too, Zach. Um, though I, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to see Steph play this way and win this way, it's interesting the way um, perceptions of him have have varied over the years, and especially once they lost Durant and Clay is out and all this, and they go through those two years in the wilderness. Granted, Steph was, himself was out for a lot of that with an injury. But there was this, all right, we'll see now. And I'll say this, advocates of certain other stars in this league, and including somebody who is close to, to one star in particular in this league, uh, I will not name, said, basically, we're going to see now. We're going to see the limits of, of Steph Curry and, and why he's not as good as my guy. My guy can do all this stuff with the ball in his hands. Let's see what happens if Steph has to use the ball X number of possessions per game or X percentage. Let's see what he can. Oh, oh, wait. And then they see what's happened You know, last season. They have this big surge and, and just the way he played, period, last season. And one person in particular who was in that camp actually said to me, like, you know what? Got to give it up. Steph did it. I didn't think he was. I didn't think he could do what my guy does. But he did it, and hats off to him. And it's interesting because I do think Steph, for a guy who won back-to-back MVPs, including the first ever unanimous MVP, he still sometimes gets sold a little bit short. Like, ah, well, they, it's you know, the Warriors were this ensemble, and it's him, and it's Clay, and it's Draymond, and then uh, you know they they graft on Kevin Durant for their second for their their second and third championships, and do they even win more than one if Durant never makes that move? If there's never a cap spike, and so because this is what we do, also in this day and age of sports media. Everything has to be questioned and counter, you know, we, we have to, to, to play devil's advocate on everything. So someone's got to be contrarian in any, any given moment. I don't know if that's the all, all of it or just because Steph is the baby-faced assassin and there's just something less intimidating seeming about him or less alpha dog seeming about him or he's, he's small. slighter. He's, he's small. small. That's all. That's the only reason why. He can't it's do all of what, it. He can do the thing where he just gets the ball in the triple threat position and scores he just could do it in a different way because you have to press up on him he drives by you and all that he just does not look he just doesn't look the part he he's he's not physically dominant and he doesn't he doesn't fly right like how many times has he dunked in his his entire career and so he doesn't fit the prototype i mean james harden doesn't fit the prototype either in a lot of ways not a high flyer for a guy in his position but he does play a physically imposing game in a lot of ways 
And it, contact is a huge part of his game, of course. That's the whole point of, of the, uh, the the refereeing crackdown. But um, yeah, Steph, I think Steph is hard to process for people. That guys are not, we're not used to seeing a guy dominate in a big man's game the way he does. Not just as a smaller player, but as a player who... Uh, who hurts you without it being a physical thing or again, even an athletic thing. Like he is athletic, obviously, but not high flyer the way that Michael and Kobe, T-Mac, Vince, it's, he's not, he's just not in that, in that frame. So every time somebody comes along who's created their own mold, we, we have to, you know, take a while to wrap our heads around it. It's great that this deep into his career, he can still be making people kind of reconsider that and think about it. Um, so now, now, Amen. And now the thing I said about normal rules of spacing not applying to this team, you mentioned the young guys they have. Kaminga, who looks pretty good and ready to maybe contribute now a little bit anyway. Wiseman, TBD. Mizi Moody, Moody Mata, Madi Moody, Mirj Miza. I want one of those shirts. Measles, Mumpy. Um, uh, we'll see. You know, the normal rules of spacing not applying to the Warriors is why I have been a relative optimist on the potential fit of Ben Simmons in Golden State compared to, I mean, it's been a very divisive topic among Warriors people internally and externally. I don't, let, let me be clear. I, I don't think there's anything that's going, I think the Ben Simmons trade thing is now so complicated by all the noise and mess around it that I don't even know if teams, what teams are interested in him. What, how do they proceed at this point? I don't, I don't see any deal there right now for the Warriors. I'm just saying I think it's an interesting theoretical exercise because people immediately go to, well, how can Draymond, how can you play two non-shooters in, in Draymond and Ben Simmons? Like, they're, they're starting two non-shooters right now, and the lineup has been awesome essentially forever. They play two non-shooters all the time with Steph Curry because they have Steph Curry, and those non-shooters are often some of the smartest, best passers and defenders in the history of basketball and Ben Simmons is a very smart passer who is a great defender. Like I, I think the fit could be good. I do think the Warriors, it would behoove them to keep looking around for trades for veterans, but I don't, I don't, you know, I don't even know what the hell they would do now. I just think they're, it's an, to be clear, I just think the Simmons thing is an interesting theoretical discussion because it has been so polarized and people see the overlap between him and Draymond and disqualify it immediately. And I, I don't, I would not do that. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. And with a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. I went Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, 
Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate the both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything, pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung Smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. So I will put a question to you, Mr. Beck. Are you ready? Fire away. One of the things you wanted to talk about is how you consider this NBA season uniquely wide open. Who is the championship favorite? We have no idea. Shrug, shrug, shrug. And that's fine. There's a lot There's a lot of very good teams in the NBA. A lot of teams can make an argument. But I said, I wanted you to make your inner circle of contenders. You can define that how you will. But you can't have everybody. Not everyone can be a contender. Not all these good teams can be a contender. When push comes to shove, you got to have a small elite group. And outside the door, there's a sign that says you got to prove it before you can come into this group. So give me your inner circle of contenders. And so by the way, quick, by the way, let yeah. me just preface this. We're 15 games in. Like a lot is <laughs> a lot is going to change. These are very yes. hard decisions. I have my inner circle of current contenders, but I want to hear yours. All right, when you say contender, to make the finals or to win it all. They have to be able to win it all. But those are those things are usually right. about the same. So make yeah, the finals the is right. fine with me. Right. You 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 make it, you've now got a, a puncher's chance, whatever that means. Um in the East I, I have not deviated. It to me, it's still Nets, Bucks, and Heat. Heat are in your inner circle. Yep, absolutely, okay. absolutely. So that's three. Um, that's three. And we I got an I inner had to triangle. Now we have an inner triangle. So let's expand it to make it circular. <laughs> Look at you bringing the geometry on a Thursday afternoon. Um, in the West, I, this is where it got really hard. Like it's really, really hard. If I had to, like, I tried to limit myself to three because anything longer than that feels like you're just cheating and you're just throwing everybody in there to, to play nice. I think it's Warriors, Jazz, Suns. Okay. I think. And I'll, 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 I'll caveat that by saying I have been a consistent Jazz skeptic and I kind of remain a Jazz skeptic, but... To my earlier point that there is no clear favorite, right? We opened this season very clearly focused on two to three teams. It was either Lakers-Nets or Lakers-Bucks. The odds all said that. I think the models all said that. Pundits all said Like, how many people picked anybody in the East other than Nets and Bucks to make the finals? How many people anywhere picked anybody other than the Lakers to make the finals out of the West? Even though there's a jumble in the West. But 15 games in or wherever we are here in mid-November... I think there is no favorite. That's my premise now. For the foreseeable future, there is no favorite because the Nets, not just because the Nets have struggled some, but they don't have Kyrie. They were overwhelming favorites because they had three stars. They don't. They have two, and we have no idea when or or where or if Kyrie Irving will ever be uh, on an NBA court again. The Bucks have struggled, and I expect them to get back to where they were um, once they're healthy. They, they're, they've not been healthy. And I think the Heat are legit. But in the West, like... I don't know about you, Zach. I don't feel real. I'm usually Mr. Patience. Mr. Let's not overreact in the first month of the season. Let's wait until at least 20, 25 games. A LeBron team should never be counted out. But they've been so erratic and unreliable and strange and just uh, weirdly out of sync. 
I'm not sure that just LeBron getting healthy and popping back in there fixes it, mostly because none of us believed, or very few people believed, I certainly didn't, in the Westbrook edition in the first place. And so if, if the Lakers are not clear favorites in the West, who is really? And so the, the, the Clippers have been really good and the Suns have been really good and the Jazz are still doing what they do, even though I, I feel like they're a low ceiling team. Um, I, I, so it, it just means that, that when, I'm, when you say pick your inner circle, the Jazz are so damn consistent and so stingy defensively and have a player in Donovan Mitchell who could take another leap at any, any moment that I think they have to be in there. And this, the Suns made the finals and are now on a 10-game winning streak. And the Warriors, we, we've discussed. I, that's, that's my list at the moment with all those caveats. Here's my inner circle. Are you ready? Go. Brooklyn, Milwaukee, Golden State, and Phoenix. Now I'm going to con- expand it in a second. But that's my core four. It's my core four. Phoenix... I don't know what is so to NBA media or or fans uninteresting about, um, we'll say, the on-court product of the Phoenix Suns. They are awesome. I mean, I think I think part of it is that they're just rock solid. You know they're going to be a top 10 defense, a top 10 offense. You know exactly how they're going to play every single night. You know what their rotation is. They don't deviate much. They don't run hot or cold. They're pretty consistent. And I think the perception last year, and I shared this and I was wrong, was, well, yeah, they're a great regular season team. Do they have another gear, right? That's the, always the question oftentimes with Chris Paul teams who maximize every possession in the regular season. Do they have another gear? And they had like a little bit of another gear, but really what they had was our gear is so damn good, we don't even need another one. And I think they've won 10 in a row, mostly without Aiton. Aiton just came back and put up 40 and 20 basically in two games combined or something like that. I just think as long as Chris Paul is healthy, the the jury is is back. They deliberated, and their verdict is the Phoenix Suns belong in their inner circle. Period. They're really good. I think they 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 sorting out like the fourth wing in the rotation is as big of an issue as they have right now. Is it really Shamit as, as a three? We'll see. But I think they're awesome. So those are my four. Now I added a fifth, and the fifth is the Heat. I've been really impressed with the Heat are even better when they have everyone, which they have not actually had that often this season. They're even better than I thought when they have everyone. Jimmy Butler is a legit MVP candidate. By the way, you know who the the free throw rules have not affected at all, interestingly enough? Jimmy Butler. Nine free throw attempts a game, same as usual. Getting to the line, same as usual. I I have to dig into why and how he gets there, but uh, I think mostly just because he's a bulldozer. He doesn't stick his arms out and do goofy stuff. He just draws legit fouls. Which is interesting, too, because I was just thinking the same thing, right? Like, he's just a guy who's like, he's a big, physical, aggressive player who you just have to foul sometimes to prevent him from scoring easily. And so it stands to reason that a guy who doesn't have a lot of, of like, extracurricular stuff in his game to draw fouls wouldn't be hurt by it. On the other hand, we have seen a lot of overcompensation, overcorrection by the officials this season, right? Like, we have seen times where guys are getting mauled and it's not being called because the referees are now kind of gun-shy, whistle-shy, and leaning too far the other direction, and we're trying to find that happy medium. This happens every time the NBA makes rule changes, emphasis changes. There's always a little bit of, like, a feeling-out period, and I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, that's that's going to level out at some point. But, um, but uh, yeah, it kind of stands to reason to me that Jimmy Butler hasn't had a, a drop-off. So the Heat, the Heat, uh, the Heat. I always said had the third most championship equity in the Eastern Conference, and my worry was, 
are they going to sit guys or take an injury and and risk having their seed fall too? I think they're a better playoff team than regular season team, but they've been a damn good regular season team already. Hero is back, has made a leap. I, I buy it. So the Heat get in. So that gives me an inner pentagon of five teams. <laughs> I contemplated making it an inner hexagon with the Jazz, and I just – I think the Jazz are awesome. I think they absolutely could win the championship. I just – and they have, like, the second-best net rating in the league so far, so it makes no sense to have them outside the inner pentagon. I just – I think they got to prove it for me a little bit longer. There's something about them that I'm not quite there on yet. Um, and then I have a, a little waiting room, like a cigar lounge, outside the inner pentagon of teams, got, who, teams who have been yeah. guaranteed entry into it if – certain things break right for them health-wise. And that's the Denver Nuggets in the Los Angeles yeah, got, Clippers. Okay, yeah, I've got six of those myself, three in each conference. They're, we'll those guys, they're already in. They have the ticket in. They're just waiting for Kawhi and Jamal Murray to join the team. And if those guys are 80% of what they were at their peaks, what they are at their peaks, they go right into the inner Pentagon. That's how good those teams are. So they're in. And then, Boy, there's one team, and you mentioned it, that neither of us have in our interpentagon, hexagon, octagon, and that's the Lakers. And you, you articulated it well. I'm worried about the Lakers. I'm worried about the Lakers because the whole idea of Russell Westbrook and Anthony Davis was, well, when LeBron sits out or when LeBron's injured, we're still a pretty damn good team. Uh, they're not a good team without LeBron James. And, and, that, and that's not a shock. LeBron James is maybe the best player ever, but – I just continue to look at their team like this mishmash of parts is is not quite working. Now, THT has come back like a house of fire. That could change things. But the, the thing that worries me about the Lakers is despite this top 75 talent, they need LeBron to be MVP level LeBron to have a chance to win the championship. And he is third all time in minutes. And there is no precedent for any player having played that many minutes number one in postseason minutes, by the way, playing at an MVP level. And that just scares me. So right now I have to reluctantly, because LeBron plus AD solves almost every problem, I have to reluctantly shove them outside the octagon or pentagon or hexagon. How come when I had six teams it was a circle, but when you have six it's like cool geometric shapes? Like why am I stuck with just a basic circle? I don't know. Deal with it. (laughs) Deal with it, Beck. Um, I do think there's a parallelogram. You can have a parallelogram. I love parallelogram just because it's a great word. Is a rhombus a parallelogram, but a parallelogram is not a rhombus? Um, now you broke my brain. Geometry was way too long ago. Way too long. I'll ask my daughter when we get off the call. Um, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you what I remember. Vertical angles are congruent. That's a rule (laughs) that has stuck with me all these years later. Congruence is important in this life. I believe that. So LeBron was, you may disagree, LeBron was a very strong among the leading candidates for MVP early last season before his injury. No right question. up until the day right, no right up until the day he went down, he was he was in the it was him and Embiid and Jokic. Um so that suggests to me that he can do that again when he's healthy. The problem is that we're getting more and more of these, well, he's not healthy. and this He's is, hurt this is already. Happens, yeah, this is what happens when you get older. Three of the last four seasons now uh, with the Lakers, he's, he's had some issues. So even if I put, put that up there as a given, LeBron's going to come back. He's going to stay healthy the rest of the season. 
He's going to play at an MVP level uh, that is uh, comparable to what we saw last season before he went down. It does not erase the problem of how does Westbrook fit with this group and does do the rest of these spare parts that they added over the offseason make sense around them. And I do think it's very troubling that, yes, if all else failed, well, we don't know if Russell Westbrook and LeBron and how that's going to fit on the court, but, oh, man, it's going to be great. The non-LeBron minutes or the games LeBron misses, we're, they we're, we're golden. They they're stink. stink. They're, they're terrible without him. Dave, I was at Bulls-Lakers the other day here in L.A. There was not – I mean, stink is a little strong. I'm being a little. I got my radio guy hyperbole hat on. Let's, I'll, I'll walk back stink instantly a little bit. Um, but there was not one second in that game, not one, where the Lakers, with two of the top 75 players in NBA history on their team, where the Lakers looked like the equal, the peer of the Chicago Bulls. The Bulls were the better team, and it was obvious, and it never changed. It was never untrue for one second. So look. If LeBron comes back and he's healthy and he's playing at a top, he's a top five player, top three player in the NBA again, he solves every problem almost by himself. He doesn't quite solve the what is Russ doing when LeBron has the ball problem, but he, mit- he obviously mitigates. He's LeBron James. I think they can butt their way back into this hexagon, no doubt. But right now, what we have seen from them without LeBron and the fact that LeBron's played six games, I think, total so far, I can't put them in the inner circle right now. And I'm a big believer that the NBA, when it comes down to it, when we're talking about May and June, it's a simple thing, right? We can go through all these numbers and lineup combinations and fit and this and that. Like, it always sounds reductive, but it's really true. If you have one of the top five players, you're in the mix. If you have two of the top five or two of the top 10 or three of the top 15, it's a talent-driven league. In the end, May and June... It's dictated almost entirely by having top-level guys, and the Lakers still have that. And so there's some part of me that still leans toward, eh, it'll all just work out somehow. As long as LeBron's LeBron, it'll be fine. But there's nothing we've seen so far with LeBron or without LeBron that should uh, convince us which that is that's going to be the case Which is season. what makes Phoenix, your, your rule of thunder is what makes Phoenix so interesting because, I mean, you can argue who's the best player on the team, Paul or Booker. Do they have a top 15 player on their team? Probably not. I mean, Chris Paul was second team All-NBA last year. He was close. Um, and yet, they're just greater than the sum of their parts. I think we saw in the playoffs last year, part of what they have is a certain adaptability where they're ready for a Jokic in a way that some teams aren't ready for a huge center like Jokic. Uh, they can play lots of different styles, offensively, defensively. They're sort of malleable. There's not a type of team or a matchup that is super problematic due to some structural issue within their team. I, I really like the Suns. I, I think the Suns are really good, but that's neither here nor there. That's our circle for now. Can I want to I want to talk about the story you just wrote for SI.com. Can we do that before we go? Yeah, absolutely. You told me I'm writing a feature on Scoot. Henderson and I thought, well, that I'm in for this because uh, Scoot is a great nickname, and the yes. subject of the nickname or the origin of the nickname is of some debate within the Scoot family. Um, but he is playing; uh, he's 17 years old. He's playing for the G League G League Ignite. He's considered maybe the number one pick in the 2023 draft. Certainly the number one guard. Uh, and I haven't spent you know, it's been the pandemic. I haven't spent any time around the G League Ignite. I don't really know what it looks like, what their, what practices look like, what games look like, what coaching looks like. I'm really intrigued to hear you report. And the story is great. Everyone should read it. Chuck Person, the rifleman, 
is his trainer. Jalen Brown is from the same area of Georgia and, and talks about this guy like he's a future superstar. He's become a mentor to him. There's a lot of great voices in here. But I'm most interested to hear you sort of report, A, what kind of player is Scoot Henderson? Like, who does he remind people of? What's his skill set? And B, just like, what's going on within the G League Ignite? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What's day-to-day like? So Scoot Henderson, 17 years old from Marietta, Georgia, and looks like an NBA player right now. He should be a senior in high school right now, but uh, I've seen him on the court. I've seen him shirt off on the court. So like he has the chest and upper body of an NBA player. He does not look like some 17-year-old kid who like, oh, I could see the talent, but yeah, it's going to take a while for him to fill out. And like, no, dude could be playing right now. I'm not saying he's ready basketball-wise or, or just maturity-wise, although he is very mature in both his game and his demeanor. But he is a phenom. The, the most common comparisons right out of the gate, and this is from Jason Hart, former NBA veteran who now is coaching the, the G League Ignite. This is from... Uh, Jalen Brown, who's another, you know, uh, Marietta kid, you know, Marietta uh, product who knows Scoot well. Everybody immediately goes to some version of young Derrick Rose, pre-ACL, of course, Russell Westbrook, a little Ja Morant. So he's he's a power point guard. He's uh, He's got size. He's got strength. He's got explosiveness. You cannot keep him from getting to the basket. And the the shooting depends on who you talk to, but like I've seen him in practice shooting the three and he can shoot it. Chuck Persons got him shooting 30 footers because in today's NBA, among other things you should prepare for is be becoming a guy who can be a, a deep three threat. Um, and he's, he's just got a, he's got a great handle. Um, and he's got a great feel for a guy who's only 17 years old. So he's the first, this is what makes him interesting. The first player to join the G league ignite on a two-year deal. Now, granted, the G League Ignite has only existed for a very short time. A two-year, $1 million deal, to be clear, yes. what salaries they're paying these star high school prospects. They're paying them up to 500000 a year. So a bunch of his teammates, there's there's five others who are in this class of player who are the not yet eligible for the draft so they could play for the Ignite. They're all making, I believe, in the neighborhood of five hundred. So he's make, he's on a two-year deal, so that's how we get to a million. So it's not like he's exceeding the standard it's just he's on a two-year deal because he was so intent on getting to professional level and and finding the right place to do that, to prepare for the NBA. He graduated a year early with a 3.5 GPA, doubled up his classes as a junior to do it, and basically said, senior prom, don't need it. Homecoming, don't need it. Uh, you know, whatever. All the, all the high school life, I don't know what kids do in senior years of high school any, anymore. He doesn't need it. I'm a basketball player. I'm going to be a professional basketball player at a high level. What's my best path? He had over a dozen Division I programs coming after him. He had an offer from China that he turned down as a sophomore. He chose the G League Ignite, which I think is a great credit to Sharif Abdurrahim and what they're building, which is that they already have, after one year of this program, uh, of having guys look to them as a not just viable but highly attractive alternative to going to to going the NCAA route or going to New Zealand or wherever else. And, you know, we saw with uh, Kuminga and Jalen Green both getting drafted in the lottery, like proof of concept is already there. You, you are not sacrificing anything other than a chance to be in March Madness and be the big man on campus or whatever. And so uh, he had a rib injury in training camp, Scoot. And so it, it took a while. He finally made his debut just uh, last night, Wednesday night. Um, 
and looked pretty good in, in limited minutes. They had him on a on a on a minute restriction as he's coming back. But uh, Chad Ford and others have him as the top point guard in the 2023 draft. He should be a top three pick in the 2023 draft. He's a wonderful kid with a wonderful family. Six siblings. They all play basketball. His younger sister, uh, who they call Moochie, which is a phenomenal nickname. Uh, Moochie's what she's she's one of the best young guards in at the high school level. I think she's 16 now in Georgia. So like the whole family, like it's a basketball playing, playing family. They do everything together. And it, uh, it, part of the joy of the story was I got to spend a couple of days with them at their home in Marietta back in late June, early July. Um, during the finals, I was hanging out with the Hendersons instead of Marietta. Just a great family. And um, I, I think the kids got all the potential in the world. Well, and and you mentioned all the all the potential avenues he had to essentially be a professional basketball player at age 15, 16, 17 to make money. What a novel concept to make money from your talent. Uh, and now, of course, you have the NIL stuff with the NCAA, so you can continue to you can do that while you're a college athlete, too. And you have Christian Dawkins in your story, who, of course, was part of the part of, well, recent NCAA basketball history, we'll say. Um, and and he says it like this is finally, finally. This is a great time financially to be a teenage basketball player. You don't have to watch teenage tennis players and teenage whoever earn all this money, golfers, whatever, earn all this money when amateurism, quote unquote, prevented you from doing so, even though Coach X is making $7 million a year on your team and getting your you know, whatever. I think it's, it's awesome that these guys are, um, are able to, to – be professionals when they have the talent and the, there's a demand for their talent. And, and that's just, just, that's just appropriate. It, it's a long, long overdue market correction, basically, Zach. You know, the, the NBA agreed to, with the Players Association, must always be noted in 2005, during that CBA, that's when they instituted the age limit, which went into effect in 2006. So we're 15 years into the age limit. And we could argue about that all day, but the bottom line is, when you impose the age limit, or even before the age limit existed, this this avenue should have always existed. Not everybody's ready straight from high school anyway. And you can argue that the age limit had its merits on that particular count. Not everybody was LeBron James. But the bottom line is, players like Scoot Henderson and others, you know, 17 and 18-year-olds, there's some 16-year-olds, actually, I think, that the Overtime Elite League signed. Between the Overtime Elite, the G League Ignite, the, uh, the Professional Collegiate League, the PCL, which is going to launch next summer. These are the avenues that always should have existed. There should have already been a vibrant market that if you can't go to the NBA straight from high school, you should not be forced to go to the NCAA with all of its exploitive crap going on. You don't need to be subjected to that. You, you need an alternative. And now we have it in multiple forms. Overtime Elite, PCL eventually, G League Ignite right now. So that guys can get paid for their talent, but also get prepared for the NBA in a much more productive way, too. Because we saw in the past, Jeremy Tyler went to Israel and flamed out. And whether that's because he wasn't mature enough or wasn't ready, whatever it may be. Brandon Jennings went to Italy famously many years ago. Um, and his career was, was you know, changed by, you know, the, what was it, the Achilles, I think he had. So there's other factors at work. But when you're that age... You shouldn't have to go halfway around the world to 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 uh, hone your basketball chops. And what the NBA has done with the G League Ignite, I think, is 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 the right avenue. They're under NBA auspices. They've got a coach in Jason Hart who was an NBA player for ten years. 
they've got, and I like they've done this smartly. There are six players like Scoot on that team. The rest of the roster is veterans, and they're choosing those veterans very carefully, not just guys who um, are still trying to break back into the NBA and get more more paycheck, but high character guys, guys who are, are leaders, guys who can function as mentors, so that you know they're not just being thrown to, to the wolves, so to speak. Um, it, it's it's the right environment, and it's why Scoot chose the G League over even overtime elite, and certainly over the overseas offers and over college. He thought. This is my best learning environment. This is the place where I'm going to learn how to be an NBA player. And as I say, long overdue. I think it's it's the right move. I, I look forward to seeing this continue to expand. And as I wrote in the story, I mean, I think we're, we're coming up on a day in the not-too-distant future, three to five years, where we're going to look up at the draft board. We're going to look at Chad Ford's mock draft, Jonathan Gavoni's mock draft. And that top 10 is going to be like, oh, there's a Duke and there's a Kentucky, but then it's like G League Ignite, G League Ignite, Overtime Elite, PCL, you know, a four, you know, an international player. Um, it, it's, it, there will be more non-college tags in that top 10 mock draft than college. I would urge you all to read Howard's story on SI.com. I learned a lot from it. It was a very enjoyable read. We're going to circle back to the Warriors to finish up, and I'm going to give you a pop. A pop it's not a quiz. It's a... I'm popping a question on you, unannounced. Are you ready? I'm not ready, but you're going to do it anyway. Let's go. We wait with that's true. It doesn't matter if you're ready. Um, <laughs> it, we did this on NBA Today this week, um, and I was I, I I had my answer, and I'm surprised no one takes my answer. But here's the question: they, This is what they forced us to do on NBA Today. This is another we, one of those John Morant versus. Uh, no, it's not uh, that bad. It's not that bad. It's not, it's not that torturous. <laughs> Who the most in terms of trying to win the championship the most important player on the golden state warriors not named steph clay and draymond green is blank andre Iguodala. that was perk's answer huh i disagree no i think the answer is obvious and i don't know why people are overlooking i mean andre Iguodala is awesome he's just not gonna play 30 minutes a game or if he does i'll be very impressed by andre Iguodala. uh well, defend Andre Iguodala. I'm going to let you defend. I love Andre. Andre is one of my favorite players of all time. It's not a shot at him. I, he's just not my answer. That's all. Yeah. No, that's fine. Um, one, I think he's a big part of that this early success that we've all been surprised by because I don't think any of us uh, kind of realized that he was going to still be playing this many minutes at this kind of level for the, for the Warriors um, when he went back. I thought, oh, okay, this is kind of like the, you know, the farewell tour gets to, you know, be a mentor, go back to where, you know, had his best years, most, you know, most enjoyable. He's been fantastic for them as a passer, playmaker, leader, defend all the, all the usual Andre stuff. He's been great. And I also think he's important to, uh, in that mentor role. They now have this young core with Weissman, Moody, Kaminga, you know, you can bet Iguodala's in those guys here a lot. So with their, their evolution, um, I think is, is not just in the coaching staff's hands, but in, 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 in his, I think that's really important. So um, having a, a, a high-level playmaker off the bench, essentially your, your de facto backup point guard, and all the guys that he can defend when you're going to get to the playoffs again and face whoever, Paul George and um, you know whoever they may come across. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, LeBron, that guy, yeah. 
So yeah, I think Andre still looms large. So your answer, now I want to guess your answer. Can well, I guess your all, answer? Well, first of all, this is just such a nerd thing, but my favorite <laughs> moment from the Warriors' absolute beatdown of the Nets was Kevin Durant ran a pick and roll with whoever Draymond was guarding. I can't remember. Probably Blake. And he rejected the screen. He went away from this. He faked toward the screen and went away from it. And he, he fooled Andre, who was guarding him, just a little bit and got a little bit of daylight. Draymond read that, dipped off of Blake Griffin. I think it was Blake Griffin. Dipped off of Blake Griffin and took KD. Andre saw that Draymond saw him in trouble a little bit and darted. You turned out onto whoever Draymond was guarding, and the play died. Cool little bit of defense, right? What was cool about it was as soon as the play died, the ball went out of bounds. Andre pumped his fist, like a really big fist pump, and pointed at Draymond. Draymond pumped his fist and pointed back at him, and they had this high five. And it was like these two dudes, who are absolute geniuses, <laughs> recognized something that probably out of the 18,000 fans in attendance or whatever it is, two-thirds of whom were cheering for the Warriors because it's embarrassing for the Nets, 20 people really saw what happened in that moment. But they did, and they read it, and they knew – we're pretty damn good at this. Uh, my answer, that. my answer is Andrew Wiggins, and I don't get how that's not everyone's answer because wow. he's the guy who's going to play thirty minutes a game. He's the guy who is their designated wing defender and will have to pick up that burden. I think even more because if there's a question about what Clay will look like when he comes back, I think it's more about defense and mobility on defense than, than shooting and offense and things like that. And he's starting to shoot it a little better. He's starting to drive it a little more aggressively. I, I think. Peak, if they get whatever the best version of Andrew Wiggins is, whatever that is now in 2021 after all these years, I just think people are bored by him. He has this he has this sort of cloud of eh, over him. And the Warriors have made him into a better player, and he's become a better player there. I think he can even still get a little better. And if he's just a really good, a good player for them, I think that's the swing guy to me. So that's my answer, Howard Beck. I, 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 no, I actually love that answer. And I was there uh, for their game against his old team, the Timberwolves, when he hammered them for 35 points and just some just vicious, brutal dunks, including over over Cat. Um, and he was three for six from three-point range that night as, as well. And so you saw when everything's clicking, when everything's cooking, when he's hitting from outside and now you got to worry about that and then now he's blowing by you and dunking on you. Like the the, the I don't know what the fully realized version of Wiggins anymore is either but look from the moment they acquired him this is what we all said right listen he's not a number one we've seen enough of a sample size in minnesota to realize that he was a number one overall pick but he's not going to be your number one guy in a championship contender that's fine um with on a team with steph and clay and draymond and the rest of this crew if he only has to be your third fourth best player on any given night he's fantastic in that role and there's still some inconsistency there but um, man, he looks at ease, right? Like he's not carrying any of the burden or any of the stress that he, that he did those years in Minnesota. He just seemed really happy to be there and, and getting to do what he does. And, um, but it was interesting afterward because some of the reporters, local reporters were asking Steph and others, like, um, you see a night like this from, from, from Andrew and, and, you know, it's kind of the, something along the lines of, you know, how do you, how do you get that more often? And, and, and they were all kind of joking about the idea of like, yeah, we got to show him this tape or what? Like there was kind of this implicit acknowledgement without it being a, a a a mean critique of just kind of like the, yeah, we know what you're capable of, and if you could just bring this level of aggression and focus every night, that's that's the key. That's the key for Andrew Wiggins, and maybe it's the key for the Warriors. To your point, um, 
And it's, it, you know, there is a gentle critique in there somewhere, which is it's the, the implication that you don't bring it the same level of focus and intensity every night. And well, maybe that's, that's why, you know. That's been the book on him since day one in sure. the NBA. But that's my answer. Okay, Howard Beck, SI.com, and all things NBA over there. It's great to see you. I saw you in person recently at the Barclays Center. It was, it was a revelation. Hopefully I'll see you in person again soon. Everyone should read his stuff, listen to his podcast, everything. Mr. Beck, thank you. Thank you, Zach. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes! Catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them. You name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, let's bring in one of my favorite people, not just in the NBA, but on planet Earth, to discuss the Brooklyn Nets, who only seem to get attention when they get destroyed at home by the Golden State Warriors, and they can't even get enough real Brooklyn Nets fans into the Barclays Center to make a Nets-Warriors game sound like not a Warriors game. That's all I'm asking for. Make it sound like a neutral game. I know that the Warriors get cheered wherever they go, but don't make it seem like, wait, are they in Oracle? Not Oracle. Are they in the Chase Center or whatever the hell the thing is called? But the Brooklyn Nets, it's time to check in. 11-5. and 15th in offense, that's a little disturbing. 8th in defense, that's a little encouraging. 9th in net rating, still missing he who shall not be named. Let's check in on the Nets because there's this. they're just kind of like, eh, stuck in mud. They're so boring, blah, blah, blah. They are 11-5. and five. Kevin Durant's lighting the world on fire. I still think they could be a championship contender, but it just seems a little, eh. Sarah Kustak, how are you? Z, you're coming in hot. Eh? This is our introduction, eh? No, your introduction was, I'm not saying eh. <laughs> I actually think the Nets are better than eh. I just think the, the, the fan, the general NBA fandom does not seem that interested in discussing the Nets as a team uh, as much as they are discussing he shall not be named, whether James Harden looks like James Harden, and how unbelievable Kevin Durant is. So let's start with, just to, just zoom out. This has been a weird season for the Nets on a lot of levels. You watch every game. You're at most of the games. You know the players. You know the coaches. Like, what's the general feeling around the team? Is it disappointment? Is it patience? Is it like we still can – I mean, Steve Steve Nash to come out and say, we're flat out not on the Warriors level was like, whoa, that's that's interesting. I kind of didn't – I kind of didn't feel like it was that dire. Yeah, Z, I'm giving you a hard time. And first of all, thank you for having me. This Every time I get the text message that you're asking me 
on the low post. It's it's the greatest joy and most excitement of my days. I don't know what that says. That's, but that's it's really, the truth. that's disturbing. <laughs> it's the truth. Uh, no, I think it, I'll say a couple things. One, um, and I know the team didn't want to say it, and I know there's there's a lot of things you look at the early part of the season. One, emphasize early part of the season. The fact that you said 11 and five, you're 16 games in, and we all know how long an NBA season is, how many things change. Um, just the course of a team and a group, and especially one that has essentially 10 new players on it and the integration process that takes place. Uh, The Golden State Warriors game, you could tell the Warriors came in ready, locked and loaded. They were up for that game. They looked tremendous. Give them all the credit in the world for that. I will say being on the trip and coming back, Brooklyn just got back from a 12-day six-game road trip. Uh, first game of a back-to-back coming back at home. Those games are always challenging. And I think when you parse out the way the Nets have played against some of the top-tier competition, as opposed to some of those wins, I think that's where you start to see, okay, where is this team at? What's the litmus test of how they're playing, how they're playing together? But I think there's just a lot of moving parts. You said it. Kevin Durant, to me, has just been absolutely sensational. You know, he's a supernova. He's playing at such an extraordinary high level. But that Warriors game, I think there's aspects you look at it of Joe Harris not playing, um, the defenses and the looks, the coverages they were able to throw at him. Part of that comes from the lack of spacing uh, that was absent with that. James Harden still working back in the form. I think he has looked a lot better in terms of burst, acceleration, um, getting to the rim, just his whole conditioning in general in the last four to five games. Yeah, I said I said but, on I said on TV yesterday the Nets are a big three that right now is a big one point seven five. And they were like, Oh, that, James Harden's only point seven five. Like, that's actually pretty good considering how James Harden looked for the first eight start, games. Of the yeah, season. and and I also think he's been the the positive um, taking a long way to answer your your big picture question. And I know we'll d- dive deeper into all of this, but to me, Harden as well, both from the side of the officials making calls, Harden himself. Um, I think he is starting to play more in line with not looking for contact, not looking for he, he has been much better at just when he's attacking, attacking, trying to finish off plays, finish off shots. Um, but I say all that to say, too, that this group, you could tell there's flashes of how they're playing um, really fluid, moving the ball, uh, you know, good movement, ball and body on the offensive end. And then against the Warriors, that was an example of there was stagnancy. Um, and there was moments that you look at them and you see just how far they have to go. I think you talk about, you know, the the missing part of the big three. I, what I think has been a real positive, whether it's post-game press conferences, pre-game, talking about it, the team has no issue in, in talking about the absence of Kyrie Irving and saying that coming into the season, how they expected to play, what they had planned, um, the adjustments needed to be made because of his absence. And it's not something that they're dwelling on. I think they're moving forward and there is clarity without him. But I do think there is a comfort in saying that that has obviously changed the dynamic of what they, their anticipation, what they had set forward coming into the season. So to me, that's another area that's going to be a work in progress in how they go about that. And so, you know, overall, I don't think there's any sense of, of panic, to say the least, no, Again, no, no, 16 no, no. games in. Um, but, but I do think there's a great awareness of the areas that need improvement. And I also think, you know, the defensive side of things has been a real positive 
Nicholas Claxton is, is a person who, whether you want to look at what he brings to the defensive end, potentially what he can bring to the offensive end, James Harden not necessarily having a lob threat with his bigs and the pick and roll, but like he, he was someone expected um, to be a part of that. So being out with illness and still taking a while, uh, Steve Nashville the other night, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a ways off before he comes back. I think the expectation of maybe when he comes back, the dynamic he adds, I think there's a, a lot of things to look at. Um, where it's the big picture long run of this group, as opposed to just how they've looked in certain individual games. Well, I mean, zooming out, nothing has nothing I've seen has changed my belief that with the big three, they remain overwhelming favorites to win the championship. As hot as the Warriors have been, as amazing as they look, the Nets looked completely invincible with those three guys on the floor healthy last year. And nothing I've seen from any other team has changed that. When Kyrie made the choice not to get vaccinated and be away from the team, the debate within NBA circles and in my brain was not how much does this hurt the Nets as much as are they still undisputed or semi-undisputed championship favorites. Like That's how well the roster was regarded, even without him, even with his roster spot turning into zero. And if I pulled 30 coaches and front office people, I think, and which I did, I think probably about half of them said, yeah, I think the Nets are still the favorites. That has taken a hit. They have not looked like that kind of team without Kyrie Irving. And a lot of that is, you know, you mentioned that they've had a couple guys absent lately. A lot of that is James just not looking like James for a lot of the season. That's the more interesting question to be. But like zooming, and you mentioned the schedule. I mean, you, you know the games. Spanked by the Bucks, spanked by the Heat. Spanked by the Bulls, spanked by the Warriors. Now they've got some good wins. They beat the Wizards, and we didn't. They beat the Sixers. The Raptors is a good win. They beat the Hawks at home. They look really good in that game. I was at that game. Um, so they've had some good wins, but they've had some losses to bat, to good teams. They're like, ooh, that's that's kind of interesting. But they are eleven and five. They are tied for first in the East with the fight in Washington Wizards. I think right now they would be the best bet to be the number one seed in the Eastern Conference, have home court advantage, and from there it's just a matter of. Do the seedings break in such a way that we cannot face the Bucks until the conference finals? The Bucks, of course, have been a mess health-wise. Giannis, very much not a mess, just rampaged all over the Los Angeles Lakers last night, just dunking and hooking and just, just killed the Lakers by himself. Um, and, and I and I fully expect the Bucks to be right there with the Nets. So you know you can read it you can read it any number of ways, but they just the idea that they could still be semi-undisputed favorites without Kyrie, I think, is taking a hit. I don't disagree with that. Um, I don't disagree with that. I also, though, think that that is part of the challenge that Kevin Durant and James Harden are embracing at this point. Uh, I also think you have a, in many ways, a veteran-laden roster and guys with a ton of experience or those with chips on their shoulders. Um that will buy into that. I don't think there was anyone coming into this season that had looked at it the same way as I think some of us from the media or those who make, you know, speculations on, okay, who's the favorite, what, how far away do they feel like the best team in the East or the best team in the league. Um, So I think for those reasons, there has just been a consistency and a steady understanding for this group of areas they need to get better. And now obviously the, you know, the deficit or the gap without Kyrie Irving. I mean, he's one of the, we've talked about this with a lot of people. He's one of the 
all-time great finishers, his handles, how he can create, the areas of which the Nets now you watch them offensively and when they go through, you know, points of being stagnant or struggle to score or sometimes with the second unit, depending on who's in and, and who's anchoring them or what five they have in, a lot of it is they don't have a lot of creators. They don't have a lot of guys that can break you down off the dribble and get to the basket. And I think the progression we've seen with Harden rounding back into form, a lot of that as well was he was one of those guys and we saw him last year when he came over with the Nets and, um, you know, his orchestration and his ability to get into the middle of the floor whenever you want to facilitate. I mean, he's a force multiplier. So it's not just about, okay, let's look at James' numbers, where they're at, where his percentages are at, and how does that impact what the Nets are doing offensively. His his production raised the level of everyone around him. So how he was able to get Bruce Brown going, all these other players, it, it was a trickle-down effect. And so as we've seen him progress, I think we'll continue to see that with the production of some other players. And also I just think like Patty Mills is the guy in that second unit that can, you know, get the ball to the basket, get in the middle of the floor. But but he too isn't even someone necessarily, um, you know, he can play on the ball, off the ball. But you start to look down the list of some other players who've been tremendous. DeAndre Bembry has really, really been good. Javon Carter has struggled offensively. Um, you know, Blake Griffin has struggled mightily from the three-point line and just with his shooting, but doing a yeah, lot of little things. The, but Blake, you, the Blake shooting is becoming like when he put, when he puts up a three now. I'm like, oh, this doesn't look the, the knee bend, it, it, the deep knee. The cal, he's doing like calisthenics to get that up now, and I'm like, it doesn't look good. Well, and he look, but but he's someone like the Nets are first in the league in three-point percentage. If you got Blake shooting around 17, percent he's not even factor. So who knows how much that changes. Uh, but I guess I say all that to say, when you look at the guys who are creating their own shot, it's essentially Patty, James, and Kevin. We need to talk about Patty Mills right now. Right now. Because I don't, favorite, I don't even care about favorite the— favorite human being and he, player in all, the planet. All-time teammate, really good shooter, runs around like he's got a battery up his ass the whole game long and that never turns off. We need to talk about this, though. I, I mentioned—I don't know who the hell I was talking to. When the Nets played the Wizards— he had a yoink, yoink steal on Bradley Beal where Bradley Beal got a defensive rebound and Patty Mills and in one motion took it, it from behind, snuck up like a cat burglar, snatched it, and in one motion made a layup. He did the same thing again against the Warriors except he missed the layup. I can't remember who he stole it from. I've n- I don't know that I've ever seen a player do the yoink, sneak up from behind, instant layup. But this like I need to I need to write See, a thou- I need a thousand words on this. I need to interview me, Patty Mills specifically about this. It's uncanny. Me and Bird looked at each other because we it was one of those things where whoever scored and so they're taking it and we I don't know if we kind of glanced at your notes or whatever. Like you're looking down for a second and we looked up and we're like, how did Patty just make a layup? And we're watching the replay back. I'm talking it through and I'm in disbelief as Yoink. I'm looking at this. All in one motion. Ask, motion. So you're so out of touch with pop culture. Ask Ian Eagle what yoink means. He'll get it. You have no idea what the hell is going on. You can barely hook up your Apple TV. It's a disaster in the Kustak <laughs> house. So we don't even need we don't even need to to talk about it. So that's for another podcast. So let so let's so you just mentioned the getting to the basket thing. The Nets are so fascinating because they are, and I don't mean this in a bad way. They are, and this season even more so on both ends of the floor. Really, a team when you look at what they're about all comes down to shooting. And so you mentioned that they're number one in three-point percentage. They're number one in mid-range shooting percentage. 
they're a team like they get to the line a lot. Uh, they don't their turnover rates okay. They're last in offensive rebounding. They just shoot the absolute hell out of it, and that was what they did last year. Except they don't get to the rim at all this year. They're 29th in shot attempts at the rim, 25th in shooting percentage at the rim, and it just hasn't mattered because they're such an incredible jump shooting team. Now Harden is a lot of the rim stuff, and if you looked for the first two weeks of the season. He was only getting about 20% of his shot attempts at the basket, which for him is is really bad. He's been around 30 35% for the last six or seven years. In November, that's up to like 28%, which doesn't sound like much, but he's coming up to his career norms. He's up to six free throws a game. He was at seven last year. So Harden, it still doesn't look quite right to me. Like I, I, I think his first step looks good, starting in that game in Toronto specifically. He looked like, oh, he's just blowing by people. His last step, his finishing, his explosion at the rim, he doesn't look as confident in it yet. But the fact that the first step is coming and those rim frequency and and free throw frequency stuff is coming gives me encouragement that in 30 games or 20 games or whatever it is, he's going to be James Harden again. And if he's James Harden and Joe Harris is healthy and they're getting anything out of the big guys – I, this is still one of the absolute inner circle championship contender teams. Yeah, and and I will add to that a couple things. First, in terms of James, one we've, we we have seen him get into the line more. I think the last couple he Warriors went to the line eleven times uh, last night, the other night twelve times, um, and that will vary. To me, when you talk about the confidence at the the end, those lat, and this is just my perception watching him um, when. With all the rule changes and with the adjustments, with the adjustments of what officials were calling or not calling on him early, with him not at the end of, like you think about someone being so muscle memory programmed throughout the course of, of the how many of the last years. Are you talking about are you talking about his neck muscles, like how he throws his head back mm-hmm. in a flailing motion, like that muscle memory, or like my muscle memory <laughs> of like I know how to grab the defender's arm and cheat my way to free, like that kind of muscle memory, Sarah? Careful. The, I am not. I am talking about even just seeking contact. Like I'm just talking about how you're going to finish. And even if it's just a bump or even if it's just trying to attack, there are so many things that I think now as, as he's thinking about not thinking about thinking about whether he's going to get a call to me, it's changed over the course of the last couple games, things have changed. And I would say even I, I would go back farther four or five games, but I think just how you're playing through things or it's even, and I'm not even talking about seeking contact. Like just uh, if, if, there's a more physical style of play now. I think there's just a lot of things you start to get used to. And again, 16 games in, like we have seen, whether it's the fitness conditioning level, whether it's just getting more comfortable coming back from the hamstring and playing five on five, having not, you know, actually played five on five until training, whatever it is. Um, I, I think that changes. I think that changes around the rim. I think there is the aspect of two, like I, I really do think him getting to the rim is one thing. I think Bruce Brown um, is a player that was so efficient from around the pay. He, he still has done an extraordinary job and has had um, such an impact at the start of the season. But I think his level of efficiency and hitting some shots right around the basket in the paint has not been what it should be or could be and what it was last season. And so I think that that dynamic will change and start to even out. Um, and regress to what we 
our, you know, have seen through through him through the course of the last season and a half. Um, and I also, I, I do, I keep bringing up Claxton, but I just think having a, a, a lob threat um, changes how defenses have to play you, what help is forced, where the bigs have to, you know, come over and harden that, that affects, I think, in some ways, what we've seen on Harden, how he plays. So I, I think there's a handful of things that will continue that uptick and, and just that concerted effort of getting to the pay by all players. And that's something Nash has talked about on many occasions with this team. And, and you see it very game to game, but when they stray away from it, I think in the, the following games, then you see more of that, whether penetration through pass, more post up with Aldridge, getting it to, Durant in the mid post area, whatever it is, I just think that variance because when the floor is not spaced and open for them to drive, when guys are going through stretches, when Blake's on the floor and if he's not hitting three point shots and defenses could sag, I just I think there's a trickle down effect in a lot of areas that that could be something that's fluid and changes and and eventually hopefully improves for this. Well, that's when you feel the absence of Kyrie when they have Bruce Brown and Blake Griffin on the floor and that starting five is, is fine. It's plus 20 in 171 minutes, mostly because it's the defensive numbers are amazing. The offensive numbers are actually bad. You just, you know, they're oftentimes on the same side of the floor, Blake in the corner, Bruce Brown in the dunker spot or whatever, and no one's guarding them. And everyone's on the other side of the floor, barricading, the paint and that's where you're like oh that's Kyrie would be in the Bruce Brown spot and the entire floor would be different um on that note the version of the starting five with Patty Mills has in Bruce Brown's place so sort of mimicking the shooting of Kyrie at least has played 30 minutes and been good and the version of the starting five with Patty Mills and LaMarcus Aldridge in Blake Griffin and Bruce Brown's place respectively has been dynamite and LA is the best story on the team but I want to zoom out There are two big picture questions I'm interested in your take on. The first and most important one is, is the defense real? They're eighth in defense, which exceeds expectations. And the reason I ask that is because if you look at, okay, so how are they good at defense? Eh, They teams get to the line at a pretty good rate. Uh, They don't force any turnovers. Their defensive rebounding is just okay, which is actually for the Nets is good. Um, The answer is teams are missing Everywhere. They are second in effective field goal percentage allowed, and they're first in a potent three-point percentage and top 10 across the board. And if you look at the tracking data, the fancy tracking data we have um, that measures expected field goal percentage based on who takes the shot, specifically who takes the shot and where the defense is, and actual field goal percentage, the gap between those two, i.e. luck, the Nets have had the best luck in the NBA by that measure. Interestingly, Kustak, on offense, the, the tracking data where, where, again, they're all shooting. That's what they do. The tracking data, which, again, measures based on who is shooting, is like, oh, no, they have no luck at all because their shooters are that good. They're not benefiting from any luck on offense. On defense, the, the data says they're benefiting from luck. So my question to you is, how much faith do you have that this is a real defense? I, I think that what you're seeing is fairly accurate of what you're going to see through the season with room for improvement. Um, they're, what did you say? They're nine now? They've been in the top ten eighth, for eighth. – Eighth, yeah. So they've been in the top ten for the whole part of the season, whether it's top ten, you know, whether you want to vary it a little bit to top 15. But there, to me, it, those were a lot of numbers you tossed at me. I always appreciate, um, appreciate the deep dive of numbers that – when you talk about luck, because from my view, there's nothing you're seeing that isn't something that could be 
replicated through the rest of the season and won't get better just by virtue of new players, guys learning the system, the more people get comfortable with one another on the floor. So much of defense comes down to effort. We definitely saw an uptick in the defense by the Nets in the postseason. And so I think first and foremost, you think about, okay, what's the engagement level and the effort level of what guys are doing defensively? Do you have good instincts? Do you have good hands? Do you have good feel? And I think the team has a lot of those players. And then just the understanding of what they're doing, their one through five switching scheme or one through four, you know, however they've been working this. Um, I, I think they all are having a better grasp of it. I think the coaching staff, like you look at the coaching staff, the coaching staff's implementing it. Let's not forget, you know, however much it factors in, I think a lot of credit should go to, you know, David Vanderpool, Jack Vaughn, um, but Steve Clifford is now a consultant and, and just kind of maybe some of the things that he's been able to see. Uh, but this group in general, I think there's a few more defensive minded players that add to that. And whether it's the second unit and uh, what Bembry has been able to do, you had Bruce Brown last year. I think LaMarcus Aldridge, you know, we focus so much about his mid range game and how he's impacted the offense. I think just defensively, knowing where to be in the right spots, um, adding some rim protection, he's been very good. And so I, to me, this is a defense that I think is where it's at. Claxton, you know, I keep bringing up Claxton. We'll see when he comes back and what he looks like and um, how he's able to integrate himself. But last year, in many cases, Nash called him one of their best defenders just with his switchability and his ranginess, who he can guard. He's got a athleticism and bounce to him. So his absence, I'm curious to see how that impacts the defense when he comes back. Uh, so we'll see. But overall, to me, other than the numbers of, of, of you pointing out, I don't see things that will um, will necessarily worsen. To me, I, I see the more they get comfortable with one another on the floor, understanding the importance of it, the flow of it. And when you're making shots, I mean, that, that too, to me, which you haven't seen a lot, so much gets mitigated with the transition defense and getting back when, when you're making shots and that allows you to, to get back. It's a little bit more set. So I think they, um, you know, a lot of their defensive issues come from turnovers and they have been very susceptible. This goes back to last year, um, susceptible to turning the, turn the ball over and giving teams some easy runouts and yeah, giving James them Harden, chance opportunities. A James Harden turnover or a missed shot at the rim is just a dunk on the other end. Because yeah. James is not getting back on defense and no one's getting – and everyone's the, – the floor balance is all screwed up because they're in – in the corners and all that yeah. the shooters are in and the so corners. And I don't know if you have the numbers and, and their, their defense as well. A lot, a lot of times rotations are screwed up. So there there's games. They give up a ton of offensive rebounds, give up a ton of second chance points. Um, we give up a, a good amount of points off turnovers. So to me, that's, that's also a factor of half court defense really does look good. If can you take care of the glass and can you take care of the basketball? And yeah, all if, sudden, if they're, if they're 12th in defense, if they're 12th in defensive rebounding, that's a home run. And that's, that's where they are now. Yeah. Um, I will say this. My verdict is this, the shooting numbers worry me. And I do think they're getting lucky. I don't think this is like, they have some secret sauce to make opponents shoot 33% on wide open threes, which is one of the lowest marks in the league. But I do agree with you. What they showed in the playoffs last year indicates to me that they can be an average to slightly above average defense when they care. And that's really, I think, all they need to be. Claxton is interesting to me because Steve Nash seems to err on the side of shooting. If, 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 if I can get shooting 
I'll chip away at my defense a little bit to get shooting, which makes you think that as attractive of a, as a, of a piece as Claxton is, and I, I love everything that Claxton does, switching, rim protection, lob catching, all that, he seems to me like someone who's going to swing a game or a quarter or a couple of games in a, in a specific matchup than someone who's going to be maybe like I'm playing 20 minutes or 15 minutes a game in every single playoff game, but still helpful. Here's my second big picture question. You ready for this? I got some numbers to throw to you. Ready? Yeah, bring them. Kevin Durant without James Harden on the floor. The Nets are plus 60 in 114 minutes. That is, woo! That's a, a point every two minutes. That's a lot of points. The Brooklyn Nets with James Harden on the floor and Kevin Durant on the bench, plus 33 in 109 minutes. Very good. You'd be essentially the best team in the NBA with that point differential. Not essentially. You would be the best team in the NBA. The Brooklyn Nets with Kevin Durant and James Harden on the floor together, minus 10 in 441 minutes. They don't seem to have a lot of two-man chemistry. Like it's, it's, They haven't figured out how to sort of amplify each other in the same way that they did last year. Obviously, they got to play with Kyrie at least a little bit more last year. What are you seeing in terms of those? I mean, obviously, like, yes, Kevin Durant as – coming off pin downs, spot up shooting, working off of James Harden's dribble, dribble, dribble pass game. That's easy. Like that's easy to see. Anybody can do that. Is there something else? Is there another mechanism to get them to unlock the best versions of themselves and the team when they're on the floor together? That's a great question. Um, And one that I would need to, I I would need to take a deeper dive of, of really, looking at um, my immediate reaction to that and to the numbers. And I was not aware of those numbers. I wish you would have in my audio messages to you while I was running, I wish you would have actually sent me numbers and not just open-ended questions. Sorry. I'm Uh, sorry. Now I feel terrible. I'm teasing. My, my initial reaction is when they have been on the floor, just one of them um, with whomever else, there feels to be a whole lot more off ball actions, cutting actions, movement. Um, and I, and I don't, I, I mean, I guess you could obviously relate that to ball movement, but just in general, when I am most impressed with how the Nets offense looks, it's because there is, there's so much movement and actions taking place on the second side of the floor. And I think that opens things up a lot. And you have a lot in this team. We can look at, okay, you may not have a bunch of guys that are great creators or break you down off the dribble. There's a a discrepancy in in just kind of how the shooting goes, um, despite some of the numbers. There's a lot of great cutters. And and guys have good feel and good instincts for spacing the floor in a way that comes from just their movement. And sometimes I think that is not the same when you have both Kevin and James on the floor. I think the Nets – can do a really nice job um, just in whether it's their actions or, or making sure to force defenses to make tough decisions with both of them because of, our, okay, you send in a second or are you staying home? Who are you staying with? Who are you leaving open? Um, but my initial thought is that the offense is does not have as much movement um, potentially when they're both on the floor together. And I also think just a, a work in progress of, I really do think James trying to figure out his game himself early on in, in getting back to form for him. I think in some ways that's that's also affected when you have a player like Durant and making sure you're getting him the ball and, and who you're feeding and how you're going about it. 
Um, I, I think then sometimes there's more just thinking and overthinking rather than just playing and reacting and read and react to the defense. Um, so yeah, that's a great question. There's nothing though that has has jumped out to me in any capacity at any point that has pushed towards, oh gosh, they're they're having trouble. They're not finding a fluidity together, not finding chemistry together. Um, we see a lot of quick boomerang passes back and forth with them or how they're shifting the defense to try and get each other up. But I also think for both of them, and some of it is just taking risks. Some of it's, again, I don't have these numbers, um, you know, it, at the point of the season where they're feeling things out, trying to make plays of turn, like those, I, th I think they both are the two highest turnover guys on the team. And sometimes that factors into what teams are able to do at the other end or possession game. And um, yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't have a great I, answer I, for I don't, you, I but don't, it, and it's not, and it's not to me, it's not of a concern at all, but I do think it's just a part of, of the work in progress of, because also you go back to how many play games they spent playing together last year. I mean, the numbers too, when you think about these guys, we, I think we focus so much about the big three, not playing a lot together last season. You could say the same thing about the carryover yeah. and the, the overlap of James and Kevin themselves. And so I think sometimes, you know, that factors in I, something I'm, though that I, I don't think they're very concerned about. I'm not concerned. I do think there's been more of James dribbling than there was last year, like dribbling like Houston style James. Yeah. I, I felt like he was getting off the ball a little earlier last year. And maybe that's more appealing to him when the guy you're kicking to on the wing is Kyrie Irving and not, you know, whoever. I'm tempted to say I would love to see them run more pick and roll together. Um, they've run 42 pick and rolls together in the various combinations. 39 of them have been with Harden as the ball handler, just three with KD as the ball handler. But then you're like, well, they need, like, if Bruce Brown's on the floor, he needs that's, to be the dive man. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's how that's they use what, him. When you see it, yeah. And that's where, to your point, last year, you look at the starting lineup, what you can have whoever put Blake in the dunker, who, and you got Joe Harris and Kyrie spotting up on a weak side, and then a Kevin Jane. I mean, that that's obviously why there was so much excitement for those three to be on the floor together. But I do think the thing that factors in is, okay, how, how are you spacing the floor and do you have shooters and how does that um, kind of influence who you're running the pick and roll with and, and how you're doing it? You, I do think we've seen, if I, if I remember correctly, I feel like in the past few games or at least over the course of the last four or five, we've seen some more of that. Seen yep. some more hardened to ramp pick and rolls. And I also think this, it, it, Nash has said it a lot early on, and I think so much of it has been focused on rotation and personnel base. But I even think with plays, with actions they're running, a lot of things, like they have talked about exploratory and experimental. And fit. so much of what they do, I think, is a feel-out process of just taking a look at things and how things work. Um, and so I don't always put a ton of stock into how much they've done something at this point of the year. Um, in direct correlation to how much they're going to do it in the latter part of the year For or sure. how much they like to use it. Um, so that's something I think it is, is worth taking note of. I just think it's, it's interesting to my, I think this team is interesting and, and it's been overshadowed by all the other stuff going on, but um, it's, it's going to be fun to watch them sort of continue to problem solve. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not worried about that, that I just think the numbers are interesting. And I, and that's I, interesting. It and, is I, interesting. And, I do, I, and I do feel like it's, although the nets are third in assist rate, like they're, they're, they're getting a ton of assists. They have a higher assist rate. Their number of passes is the same as it was last year. Um, but something, there's just something kind of ineffable that is missing 
some some kind of oomph, some some speed that sort of vanishes from the team at some points, and I think it's been especially noticeable in the minutes they share the floor. But I don't – those two guys are so good that if they're healthy and rolling, I, I don't worry about them. But all right, Sarah Kustak, the Nets broadcast is – the best. You're the best. I can't wait to see you at Barclays Center again, uh, and that will happen hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Sarah Kusak, everybody. You're the best, See you soon.